think taking away education from your child massively limits their autonomy in adulthood. That's forcing your child to marry somebody. You know, that again ties them into um, the community as an adult and takes away their autonomy. You're listening to episode 46 of the National Secular Society podcast, produced by Emma Park. Despite being a criminal offence, forced marriage is still a problem within certain religious communities in Britain. According to the UK government, forced marriage may involve physical violence, but does not have to. It can also include emotional and psychological pressure. It is the psychological type of forced marriage that has concerned my first guest on this podcast, Eve Sachs. Eve is a board member of Nahamu, an organisation which aims to counter religious extremism within Britain's Jewish population. In February this year, Nahmu published a position paper co-authored by Eve and her colleague, Yehudis Fletcher, on arranged and forced marriages within ultra-Orthodox Haredi communities. The paper examined the harm that it can cause young women and men to be pressured into marrying without their full consent. One of the main ways of tackling forced marriage, as the NSS and other organisations have argued, is through education, in particular Relationships and Sex Education, or RSE. In the second part of this podcast, I will be joined by Megan Manson, Head of Policy and Research at the NSS, to discuss what needs to be done in order to ensure that all children in Britain have access to RSE. We also look at the barriers in the law to the objective teaching of RSE in faith schools and the impact which the narrow worldview of some faith schools can have upon their students' ability to grow into fully autonomous adults. But first, let's talk about forced marriage itself. Eve Sachs, hello. Hello. Let's start with a basic question of definition. How do Karadi Jews relate to other Jews? Um, if we look on the continuum from orthodox and maybe isolated from society to liberal and fully integrated, where would you put them? So if we're looking at the ultra-Orthodox community, which we prefer to call the Haredi community, which is the term that they use themselves, um, this is just part of the community that are quite fundamentalist in their religious beliefs. So unlike um, modern Orthodox Jews or liberal or progressive or traditional Jews, they generally live um, quite in, in insular communities and they generally have their own schools, their own communities, and they often don't have a lot of contact with those outside their communities. And obviously some do work, you know, in wider society, but some work within the communities. So their entire life and their entire life experiences for some people could be within that community. How far do they speak English? So this varies. So for the women, they speak English very well. You know, the schools follow most of the national curriculum or the bits of the national curriculum that they are happy with. And the girls will sit multiple GCSEs. So the girls' English is completely fluent. In parts of that community, um, there will be um, boys who attend the unregistered schools and the boys in that part of the Haredi community, so not the whole Haredi community, in what we call the Hasidic part of the Haredi community, um, the boys' English could be quite limited, even if they've lived in the UK their whole lives. How large a proportion of the Jewish population in Britain um, are the Haredi Jews? So I'm not sure of exact numbers. We're talking about 10 to 15% of the population, but they've got quite a high birth rate. So when you're looking at percentage of Jewish births, it'll be much higher than that 10 to 15% if you're looking at the overall demographics. And just for our listeners' interest, where would you put yourself on the continuum from orthodox to liberal? Um, so I'm a member of um, mainstream orthodox synagogue. Um, I'm observant of the Sabbath laws. I keep kosher. Um, so somewhere in the middle, I guess. 
Let's talk then about um, arranged marriages within the Haredi community. How does the process work? Because it's quite a distinctive process. The way it works will depend exactly on the type of Haredi community, but broadly the parents will go to the matchmaker, they'll discuss the sort of person they're looking to find for their son or daughter, um, and the matchmaker will see who's on their books, I guess like a sort of dating agency in many ways, and will start fixing them up on introductions um, with the young person who's looking to get married after the meeting, depending on the community, either the couple will just discuss themselves if they want to meet again. In some communities, they'll go back via their parents or the matchmaker, but whether they, whether they want to meet again. How much of a say then do the bride and groom-to-be have in choosing their spouse? Right. So this really very much depends on which part of the Haredi community we're talking about. So, you know, as we've discussed, and the reason you invited me on this podcast is um we wrote our position paper on forced marriage. And what we are concerned about is a situation where the bride and groom have got very little say indeed over who they get married to. Now, that's certainly not the case in all parts of the Haredi community. In some parts of the Haredi community, it functions much more, the shadchan, the matchmaking process functions much more like a sort of traditional matchmaker that a secular person might use, if you think, imagine match.com or something like that. But in some parts, particularly the more insular parts of the Haredi community, like, for example, the types of Haredi community where the boys are attending unregistered schools you could then have a situation in some parts of the community where the young people getting married have really got very little say indeed um, and that's what we're concerned about and I think you know when we're talking we're saying that all by definition all forced marriages are arranged but not all arranged marriages are forced so we were looking at what would make an arranged marriage a forced marriage and that broadly in comes down to whether the bride and groom have got any say over the process and whether it would be easy for them, you know, once they've been introduced to somebody to say, actually, this is just not the right person or I'm not ready yet, I want to wait, or actually, I just want to meet somebody in another way. And when none of these things are possible, you know, you're beginning to tip into what might look like a forced marriage. What are the pressures on young Karadi people to get married to someone, even if they have hardly met them before the marriage or don't necessarily like them? It's probably best to, to pick that up into the first question, which is what the pressure is to get married in general, right? Yeah. So, you know, you're living in a community where young women are brought up, even though the girls have got very good education up to GCSEs, there's pressure to have children. And these are sort of general pressures that you really start from infanthood. So, you know, this is why the forced marriage we're talking about is actually quite hard to identify because, you know, when I say or when one says forced marriage, you sort of imagine somebody being shipped off to another country, you know, perhaps having their passports stolen, you know, perhaps there being some element of physical force. But that's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about socially conditioned forced marriage. And that's a situation where you bring somebody up in an insular community and they just don't see any other options or any other ways to meet somebody. And there's the expectation to marry young. So, you know, we've seen in the Ofsted reports of um, romantic literature being redacted. So, you know, one of the reasons for that, even if it's non-explicit, you know, just sort of very innocent romantic literature being redacted is because, you know, that promotes the idea of, falling, you know, marrying for love and romance. So basically their, their autonomy, their ability to make their own decision is simply conditioned away. So they don't know what they're missing. Yes, to the point that for a lot of them, that they'll tell you this is exactly what I want. You know, and it's like, you know, if you bring somebody up, you know, from infanthood without having that autonomy, for many, a bit like Stockholm syndrome, for many, they'll just sort of be happily go along with that. 
you know, and even girls who, let's say, do very well in their GCSEs and, you know, they, they go to the doctor and think, oh, I might quite like to be a doctor. You know, they'll be giving, living lots of messages. Oh, it's not a good career for you. A lot of time in university. You won't graduate till you're really old. Who will marry you then? You know, so even if they sort of got excellent GCSEs and sort of, you know, obviously everybody's come across a doctor and think that might be a good career. They won't necessarily have the autonomy to be able to decide to do that. What's the average age for these arranged marriages in the Haredi community? Between 18 to 20. So, And that's the same for both men, boys and girls? Yeah. In some parts of the Haredi community, boys are getting married slightly older. But, you know, in terms of this, and I think that's what's interesting with this, because people tend to think of forced marriage being a sort of women's issue. And look, obviously, once the couple are married, the, the power dynamics and the relationship are different for the man or for the woman. But, you know, in terms of these marriages, it's absolutely equal, you know, boys and girls, either just before or just on reaching adulthood. How far is the concept of consent a part of the Jewish conception of marriage? Right. So Jewish law requires consent. So it requires, you know, the bride to basically have, you know, to agree to have the, literally to have the ring put on their finger as part of the marriage ceremony. You would be absolutely not a valid Jewish wedding if she was in some way like held down and the ring was put on her finger without her agreeing to it. Um, However, the, the line that you would draw of what consent where consent is within Jewish law is not necessarily match up to, doesn't necessarily match up to the way we see consent now in terms of society generally. And you could take a step back and say, well, what do we mean by a full and free consent? You know, so for example, if you're marrying somebody you've only met once and you know nothing about them, you don't know whether they're a loving, going to be a loving husband or whether they're going to be an abuser in, in the worst scenario. Or just if they've got serious mental health issues you can't cope with or perhaps they're gay, I don't know, whatever it is. You know, the woman as part of that marriage ceremony is consenting by Jewish law because she's holding out her hand for the ring to go on her finger. But is she legally giving a full and free consent when she doesn't really know anything about her future husband? You mentioned that um, some romantic novels were, say, redacted. On the topic of education, how far do Haredi boys and girls receive relationships and sex education in schools? So this is something that we've been lobbying on. Look, relationship and sex education is really important for everybody. And I would argue, and I have argued before, and I will continue to argue, that um, Haredi children need sex education and relationship education more than any other children in the country. For, for various reasons. Unfortunately, even though the government has made massive progress in introducing universal um, sex and relationship education, although I think it's just coming in in September now, I think there's a delay because of COVID, um, Haredi schools have not necessarily been agreeing to teach that. Now, you know, we, you know, we can talk through the different reasons why these children need the education. But one of the reasons, of course, is because of the early prevalence of forced marriage and also because of the lack of understanding of what full and free consent is, both to a marriage, but also of relationships, physical relationships inside a marriage as well. There are other reasons why these children need this education. For example, we've heard of people who have an LGBTQ identity but get married without even realising or understanding that part of relationship and sex education would help the the children in Haredi schools who have this identity understand and come to terms with what that might mean in terms of future relationships. Also, like all communities, there is... um, sexual predators and keeping girls and boys completely naive to these risks um, is a big problem because that puts them at risk of, um, you know, being groomed by a predator. 
Let's talk about the effects of, of the forced marriage on the men and women involved. Now, you mentioned the problems of people who might turn out to be lesbian or gay or, or LGBTQ in general. How far are, is being um, different um, from, from the um, heterosexual identification? How, how far is that tolerated within the Karaji community? What do you do if you, it turns out that you're gay or lesbian? I think there's a problem because, you know, obviously if you identify your identity and manage to sort of not to get married and sort of live quietly single or leave the community, you know, that's less of a, much less of a problem than if you find yourself in one of these marriages. And basically, particularly if you're a lesbian woman, find yourself being subject to um, ongoing marital rape. It might not be that the woman's saying, no, don't do this in terms of every time they're engaging in sex but if she's uncomfortable with it and just doesn't feel that she can say no or doesn't have the tools to say no or perhaps you know they just sort of discuss it and she's told you're married to me this is what you have to do the, the Haredi community hasn't really found a great space for people who are born into their community who do turn out to be gay other than to say they should leave and you know if they leave that's great but the problem is the the people who end up getting married first and then you have all sorts of issues in terms of what happens with children what would you say are the biggest negative effects of forced marriage on the men and women involved? So look, I obviously have a slightly biased viewpoint because the people coming to me are coming to me basically because they're not happy. Because why else would you reach out to an activist who's so vocal if you're happy? Right. So I'm absolutely prepared to admit that for a lot of people, you know, they have this forced arranged marriage and actually they're happy and it's all fine and they live out their lives you know, that their parents have made a good choice for them. And that's fine. So the people who are reaching out to me are already not happy for some reason. So there's various reasons. Um, so a couple of the people recently who reached out were both men who had decided they didn't actually want to be Haredi at all. They wanted to basically live as secular Jews. And they sort of reached out to me to say, you know, what to do now? We just want to be secular. We don't want to be religious at all. But they were still, once the one man in particular, the, he was still pressurised into the marriage because um, his younger sister was getting married and there was a tradition in the family of getting married in age order. And he realised he, you know, he'd grown up in, in the UK, but he didn't have any secular education at all. You know, so he just realised, you know, I helped him go to the cinema and go to a nightclub and meet some young people. But I think as part of that, he just realised how difficult it was going to be because he had had his opportunities taken away from him. You know, so that's one category of people. So those who don't want to be Haredi anymore. A lot of the women who come to us have ended up with violent partners and there's been domestic abuse um, and marital rape. Could you give us some examples? I mean, without becoming going into too much of the traumatic details. Women who are not attracted to their husbands who don't want to have regular sex with them and are subject to sexual violence. Or women whose husbands have got quite serious mental health issues that they didn't know and struggle to deal with it and have ended up being violent, perhaps because the mental health issues are not under um, control. What about in terms of bringing up children? Can it be difficult for people in forced marriages to bring up children together? So one of the challenges we're seeing as well is that, you know, when somebody decides that they're going to leave and particularly um, when the other spouse is very devout in their views, you then get issues over schooling. So, for example, there's somebody that I was speaking to quite recently who's just, you know, she's got a son who she just desperately wants him to get into the regular Jewish school so he can do or any regular school so he can do GCSEs and, and time A levels. But, you know, 
that's end up going to end up going to court because her ex-husband wants him to stay in a Haredi school where the education is extremely limited indeed. Um, so people who leave have all sorts of additional challenges. Is it the case that in, in a Haredi marriage, the man has any control over the woman in terms of um, what she does with her career, what she does with money, the number of children she has? Well, look, I think a lot of these things are not necessarily controlled by the husband, but are controlled by communal expectations. So I don't think it's so simple. So look, some things some things will be able to be resolved within a marriage and there may well be, or there's likely to be an expectation that the man will take responsibility for certain things. You know, so we've heard a couple, one woman came to us to say that she thought that um, getting married would be her route to be able to drive because her parents are always said, well, if your husband lets you drive after you get married, then it won't be up to us anymore. But I think some of these things just end up being, um, you know, on the agenda of the, the community at large rather than on the agenda of the particular husband. And it would be very difficult for a woman whose husband says, you know, I insist that you um, wear this particular type of hair covering or I don't let you drive or whatever it is. And the woman may not feel she has a voice. But part of this will also come from her parents, his parents and the community at large. So I wouldn't want to pin the whole thing on, you know, the dynamics within a relationship. So basically, if you're a woman in the Haredi community in your marriage, marriage, you have a lot of pressures on you to conform to the expectations of others and you have relatively little autonomy to live your life as you want. Broadly, yes. And obviously having many and multiple children close together will add to those challenges and take away from autonomy. So yeah, talking about um, the divorce, so how far has get the refusal of the get, the religious um the Jewish divorce, which a man um, grants to a woman. How far is, has this been a problem in Haredi marriages? It is a problem, but I think what's a wider problem is more, if you take a step back from that, before you even get to the point that the man doesn't want to give the get, is that, you know, if the couple experiences um, domestic difficulties, they're likely to be told by the community leaders that they should um, try again. And we've, we heard from one particular woman who told us that her husband had been violent and notwithstanding all of that, you know, as a victim of domestic violence, she was told he's your husband and you have to stay with him. When your whole support network is telling you that you have to stay with him, that's already a challenge. So, I mean, interestingly, what we've seen happening is when women have left and they've decided they don't necessarily want to be particularly observant anymore, in some ways, the religious divorce might be more interesting to the man who wants to marry again within that community and needs her to accept it than for the woman. Because if she leaves and decides to be totally secular, she may just decide that actually she'll be happy with the civil divorce. But, you know, in most cases, the woman does need the religious divorce. But um, unlike, let's say, in a um, Muslim religious marriages, the men really can, in most cases, only have one wife, which means if he wants to get married again, you know, he he will need to give that divorce. There is an issue with get refusal, but I think the numbers in the UK are less than 20. So, And there's new legislation around coercive control. I mean, it is an issue, but um, it doesn't only affect the Haredi community. And it's not the biggest problem, I don't think. Uh, for, you, for you, what is fundamentally the biggest problem? The fu fundamental problem for me, I think, is the lack of autonomy. So, you know, I don't really have any problem at all with somebody who wants to be a religious fundamentalist and leave, lead their life in an insular way, as long as they chose to do that as an adult, because we should have autonomy in how we lead our adult lives and that they don't, um, they give autonomy to their children if they don't want to do that either. So that's why I lobby on the schools, because I think taking away education from your child massively limits their autonomy in adulthood. That's why we lobby on forced marriage, because 
forcing your child to marry somebody, you know, that again ties them into um, the community as an adult and takes away their autonomy. So for me, it's all really about autonomy because we should all lead our lives. And, you know, as long as we're following UK law, we should all lead the, our lives the way that, you know, we see fit. And if you see it fit to lead your life in an insular community, that, that's your call. But when you start taking away other people's autonomy because of that, I see that as a big problem. Some politicians who are, or commentators who aren't Haredi or perhaps not even Jewish might say that um, these arranged marriages and you know the, the, the faith-based education are a cultural norm and it's no business of English law to interfere. And your colleague Yehudas Fletcher, the founder of Nahumu, has argued that this discourse of cultural norms can sometimes be used to dismiss the problems and pressures that people in the Haredi um, community may face in an arranged marriage. In your view, where should the line be drawn between the problems that should be dealt with by the laws of the land and those that should be tackled within the Haredi community? Um, where, where does the principle of secularism and the separation of religion from the state fit in here? That's a very good question. So, look, I think this the starting point has to be that, you know, lots of the laws are there for reasons. So if you start with the education, as an example, you know, we shouldn't be letting anybody off educating their children you know, because of their faith background, you know, that's, um, the, you know, there's a human right to education and to deny their education. That would be, you know, looking at cultural norm and saying, oh, these children aren't entitled to an education is highly problematic. Um, I think, you know, the same with, um, let's say, not, not following up on um, cases of abuse or predators because of cultural norms is highly problematic. And I think even with forced marriage, I think, you know, again, the government might be a bit uncomfortable with this, but you've got to just sort of take a step back and say, well, actually, the, the, the laws in the UK have been put in for a reason and something is an infringement, you know, of what's a forced marriage according to the legislation. It, that's the point at which um, you, you, need, you need to take action, even if that makes you uncomfortable and even if that, you know, goes against what the, the cultural norms of that group are. Because I like to think that, you know, we have a secular government and when the law, the forced marriage law from 2014, if that says that all threats and pressures to, to um, coerce somebody into marriage is, is a criminal offence. That's, you know, that's where we draw the line. If, you know, if the government takes an even firmer stance at some point in the future, they'll presumably have um, put the energy and the consultation into making sure that that's the right way to go at that point. You know, norms do change over time, I think. Uh, presumably, I mean, from, from what you've said, in fact, some of the people in the Haredi community, those who have to go through forced marriages, may um, there may be cultural norms, but the cultural norms are not benefiting them, they're harming them. Yes. So look, I mean, I think there's a mix. I think there's a mix here because some people will actually have these forced marriages and be very happy and not even ever reflect that they were a forced marriage. For some people, they will have gone into it with really good intention. You know, they will have been a sort of model student. You know, they'll have wanted to marry the person their parents suggested. But when it comes to the nitty gritty of being married to somebody long term and it turns out that the person's not exactly what they bargained for, at that point, only then will they reflect that it was in fact a forced marriage and they had no part of the decision making. So yeah, I think the government the government does need to um you know not let cultural norms shadow their judgment. But at the same time when laws are put in place, there should be consultation processes and that is what happens to make sure that everything's considered. So if we're thinking about the best way for British society as a whole to help tackle problems um, like arranged marriage that occur within closed faith communities, your response to that would be open consultation, um, talking, legislation, trying to find a way forward together. Yeah, and I do think with this, like, you know, 
I don't have any issue with arranged marriages. In fact, I think, ironically, more and more people now turn to arranged marriages because, um, you know, if you want to look at something like Match.com as a form of an arranged marriage, you know, I don't have any issue with an arranged marriage as long as it's done with a full autonomy of um, both the people getting married, you know, as long as they control the process. I think that's absolutely fine. We're not saying there shouldn't be any arranged marriage because that's a ridiculous suggestion. We're just saying that if there is arranged marriage, you need to think more carefully about where the fine line is between what makes um, something an arranged marriage where they're introduced to suitable people that they can either decide to or not to get married to with however much time they need to make that decision and with no stigma versus a situation where they don't have any control or choice over what's happening. So one of the things that we did when we wrote the paper is we decided that we set out what we call markers of forced marriage. And we did this because we wanted to sort of make it clear what it was we were actually talking about. For example, this idea that you would only be allowed to meet the person for a very, very short length of time before having a decision. That that would be happening in a forced marriage. In an arranged marriage, you would obviously have as much time for as long as you want. And what are the other main markers? Yes, we set out five markers, although I'm sure you could come up with more. And this is just based on what we saw in the Jewish community. I'm sure in different faith communities, you would come up with different markers. So the the, the things that we um, wanted to talk about was, first of all, the young person not really having a control over the, the timing or the process. So the young person not being able to say, well, actually, I'd rather just meet somebody through dating. Or it could be that there's a sibling getting married and there's a pressure to get married in age order within a family. So, um, you know, the first point is just the first marker was just no control of the young person over entering into the arranged process. The second thing was basically about um, very rushed engagement, so only being able to meet one or two or three times. Um, And in some extreme cases, it might only be once or twice. And we've even heard of people who had this first meeting in their parents' house and the engagement food was already laid out on the table even before that first meeting took place. Obviously, that would be an extreme situation, but we're talking about rush decision making, you know, not meeting as long as you would need to let, you know, to really understand who you're getting married to. And the third thing and we were talking about is once there's an, the engagements happen, not being allowed to freely communicate after that. So whether that's not being allowed to meet or not being allowed to even speak on the phone or by text message. So you know, once the engagement's been agreed, um, no further possibility to get to know the person before the day of the wedding. So basically things which prevent them from really having this ability to to consent fully because they don't actually know what they're getting into. Exactly. And the the fourth thing that we spoke about is an engagement contract. So this is basically a contract which is binding under Jewish law, which is basically between the two fathers or the two sets of parents, which is agreeing to take they're agreeing to take their children to the wedding at a future set date. And there's stigma. The contract could be broken, but there's stigma to breaking it. And the the young people are told, oh, the stigma of breaking engagements worse than getting divorced, for example. So there's sort of emotional and religious type spiritual pressure over once this engagement contract's been signed and that contract's often signed within a week of that first meeting and they've not got to know each other if you imagine the timeline here the parents have decided the timing of the introduction the persons have met maybe once two twice they've got engaged um, and now their engagement party is a week later and now this contract's been signed where the parents have now made this binding commitment with possibly with financial or spiritual penalties, um, excommunication perhaps penalties, that they're going to um, get married at this future set date. So that puts a huge amount of emotional, psychological pressure on the young person. And then the fifth 
thing that we spoke about is just this expectation of marrying the, the person that they're introduced to. So this, for me, I think is the key one. So if you just imagine you're meeting somebody on Match.com, if if you meet them and they're not right, you just say no. And you know that saying no to that person won't affect any future matches or how you're seen. But, you know, what if you meet one person and you say no and then you're seen as being fussy and the future matches become less good? So you just sort of intuitively know that the best match will be the first one and that's the one you're expected to marry to get married to. So this just expectation of marrying that person that you're introduced to, I think, is, you know, the, the most problematic one and that's one that comes you know we mentioned before about the social conditioning so bringing young people up in a community where they're socially conditioned that they will marry the person their parents introduce them to finally what is the best way for our society as a whole to help tackle problems like arranged marriage that occur within closed communities like the Karadim? So I, th- I think, you know, taking a step back on this, it's really important to listen to the people from that community. So I'm very aware, you know, although I'm Jewish, I'm not from the Haredi community. And I really, really listen to people who are coming out of that community and telling me where they think the problems are. And I think, you know, for me, the biggest problem that's th- at the root of all of this at the moment are the unregistered schools. So basically, education is at the root um, of solving these problems. Yes, absolutely. Education. And it's not just the relationship and sex education, although it is, that is critically important. It's just just basic secular education. Whatever you think about GCSEs and A-levels, the way it works at the moment in the UK is that is your route to autonomy, is to have these qualifications that will then enable university or career access. Eve Sachs, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm joined now by Megan Manson, Head of Policy and Research at the NSS. Megan, hello. Hi there. I thought Eve Sachs made some really interesting points there about the problems faced by people in in the Haredi community and the difficulties they face with actually trying to um, be able to be in a position of making an autonomous choice. Megan, this all really stems, doesn't it, from a most recently, a position paper which the Nahamu um, organization published on forced marriage um, on the 8th of February this year. How did this um, position paper really bring forced marriage to light? Yeah, um, well, first, um, I think Nahamu should be uh, congratulated on this paper. I think it's excellent. It really does, I think, challenge uh, the stereotypes that we might have about forced marriages. So when we sort of think about forced marriage, uh, we might assume that they are forced by threats of violence or by sending the bride away and taking her passport, as um, Eve mentioned, and that it's something that maybe is more commonly associated with, with Asian communities and that women are usually the victims now, while that's certainly true in many cases, this paper showed you know, a, a very different perspective um, that in the Jewish communities, it's generally not, marriage is not forced through threats of violence, but by a lack of education uh, combined with social pressure. And that the victims um, are very often male, that men in Jewish communities are often have an even worse education than the girls do. So they are also in a position where they can't really consent to marriage without really knowing what that means and um, without being able to sort of say no if they're unhappy with it. So um, it is a really good paper for sort of expanding our understanding of what forced marriage means. Um, And I think it's really forced people to think about this uh, a bit more carefully. 
How far is the government able to act or, or not able to act um, in the supervision of, of Karadi or ultra-Orthodox schools? Well, um, this is interesting. Um, I think that there's certainly a gap here. The Department for Education is well aware of the insular nature of uh, Haredi schools, and it sometimes does act on them. So I've certainly read some um, Ofsted reports where Haredi schools have been penalised for having quite a narrow curriculum uh, or for censoring material. Certainly I've seen that come up, but I don't think the Department for Education goes far enough. There have been cases where um, even state-funded schools in the Haredi community have basically been given a green light to enforce rules that will really withhold information from their pupils. What sort of information are we talking about here? Well, so if I can give an example, uh, this is just from February. There's a school in Salford, um, Beis Yaakov Jewish High School. Um, It's an all-girls school. And um, it's been state funded since 2005. So it's a, I think it's a voluntary aided school. The Office of the School's Adjudicator, or the OSA, um, is a part of the Department for Education which decides whether or not schools are complying with the school's admissions code. Um, so all schools basically have a, a code um, that parents have to follow um, if they want sort of priority entry into um, faith schools, for example, just as so if it's a faith school, it'll basically, they'll, they'll say, well, which which pupils can, um, are, are prioritised? So, for example, with Catholic schools, it tends to be baptised Catholics um, who are prioritised. So, the OSA in February took a look at the uh, admissions code of Beis Yaakov, and um, it found certain points where there were there were lots of problems with the admissions code, um, lots of technical problems. But what was really interesting are the parts that the OSA didn't have a problem with or even seemed to sort of say they were acceptable. So, for example, this particular school places extreme restrictions on the private lives of pupils and their families. So, for example, uh, the admissions arrangement said that families um, had to strictly limit their children's access to all forms of communication, including cinema, theatre and written material. And in one example, it said that the requirement that school-aged children do not watch television was, and it, it gave an example as this being an acceptable uh, thing to put in admissions code because it was objective. You can objectively measure whether or not school-aged children do or do not watch t- TV. But it seemed to miss the point that this is a really unreasonable thing to, um, to impose on families and that this restricts children's access to information. I mean, if you know, it means that they can't watch the news. They can't know what's going on in the wider world or even in the country they live in. Um, and going back to um, Eve Sachs' point about autonomy, I mean, that really res- would restrict their ability to be autonomous individuals because they simply, they're being cut off from so much information about what's happening in the society they live in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, in this, and the wider society, you know, in Britain, um, you know, they're, they're completely cut off from that. And the other thing as well about the same school, um, I think it's, it's quite relevant here to talk about this, is that... Um, it imposed a dress code. So this is an all-girls school and it imposed a dress code on pupils and their mothers, um, which was, quite frankly, sexist and unreasonable. It's very intru- It seems very intrusive to, to require the parents to behave in a certain way or wear so- certain clothes. Well, yes, this is all about sort of proving your 
religiosity. It's about saying, well, you know, but we are true Haredis, um, so therefore we deserve a place at this school. Um, so, for example, it said that mothers must cover their hair at all times and that, uh, that, that girls should wear tights at all times and it should be apparent that they are being worn. So no long skirts, um, for example, that would, that would hide the fact that you're not wearing tights. I mean, these are, you know, these are ridiculously intrusive, as you said, and they're frankly sexist. They're sexist standards that are only um, applied to women. Another powerful point made by Eve Sachs is that um, one way in which autonomy can be hindered is if there is no comprehensive, um, well-balanced teaching of relationships and sex education at um, these schools. What are the barriers at the moment to um, ensuring that all children, even at faith schools, get comprehensive RSE? Well, hopefully some of the barriers are going to be removed when the sort of the, the, the compulsory RSE is rolled out in September. Um, how this is going to go in um, in the Haredi schools, I'm not sure. But even with this, there are some big issues. So one issue is that the according to the government guidance, um, faith schools can teach RSE according to the tenets of their faith, which you, know, you can see is going to have a whole host of problems. And we did explore those problems in a report, um, it's called Unsafe Sex Education, which we published in 2018. And we found in our research um, that there are a lot of state-funded schools teaching that all co- contraception is morally wrong, apart from the rhythm method, which I'd, I'd hardly count as contraception because it doesn't work very well, and that, that abortion is wrong, um, masturbation is wrong, and of course, sex outside of heterosexual marriage is wrong. So, um, And I think I found one or two schools saying that homosexuality is disordered. What justification is there for the government to say that faith schools may teach um, RSE in accordance with um, the tenets of their faith? Why this subject in particular? Well, I think it's because religions have a huge stake in sort of controlling the sex lives of their congregants. And they have a lot to say about what they think um, makes a a relationship according to that religion. Um, This is the dilemma. If you're going to have faith schools, you have to sort of let them teach their religion. Otherwise, what's the point of faith schools? So I can see why the government is kind of forced to let them do that. Because otherwise, well, it ceases to be a faith school, isn't it? If it it can't teach what it thinks about relationships and sex education, then, you know, it it ceases to be a faith school. So that's kind of why they have to do it. It's it's the question that that even if they teach their views, um, the question is perhaps whether they should also be required to teach other views with which they disagree. Yeah, and um, I'm sure that many faith schools do do that. I'm sure that many faith schools teach that, you know, there are other views. But the problem is, if you're a Catholic school, for example, I I wouldn't say it's possible to teach that objectively. Because, you know, if you're a Catholic school, you already have a um, an expectation that the children there are, you know, are, are being raised Catholic. And that, you know, it says, well, we are we are a Catholic school. You are therefore Catholics because you come here. Um, and as, as a Catholic school, this is what we expect. Um, we So Catholics think that uh, same-sex relationships are wrong. We are a Catholic school. Ergo, we think same-sex relationships are wrong. Therefore, if you're a child at this school, we implicitly think that you'd be doing something wrong if you turn out to be gay. 
What what is the in your view is the solution to this issue? What needs to be done to improve the supervision of faith schools and in general to ensure that children are given the education they need to make a fully autonomous decision about what to do with their lives, including their sexuality? Well, first, I think there do need to be sort of greater powers for the DfE to intervene on school rules that are not in the people's interest. So, you know, I thought it was very telling that the Office of the Schools Adjudicator couldn't really do anything about these ridiculous school rules that were clearly, you know, if you're if you're saying that children can't watch TV, I mean, that that's clearly not in the interest of the child. So I think they should be able to have the power to say, hang on a second, this is this is really unreasonable. Um, so it's, it's strange that they don't already have that power. Secondly, I'd say that, um, you know, mandatory RSE really does need to be mandatory. And that means that there's no religious opt outs. There's no, you know, you have to teach it in, in an objective way, an inclusive way, in a way that doesn't uh, stigmatize LGBT children, for example, and that doesn't sort of stigmatize the idea that contraception and taking control over your own reproduction is a bad thing. And presumably doesn't also stigmatize the idea that you might have sex before marriage or might try out different partners. I mean, because one, one thing that really struck me with the Haredi system was that you have one partner and that's it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, there, there are, you know, obviously there are children at all schools who have, you know, they have very different family setups and no child should feel that there's something wrong with the particular setup they're in because it isn't, you know, one mum and one dad, it's something else or that their parents have been divorced and remarried or anything else. No child should feel there's something wrong with their family. The other one is I'll just reiterate um, Isak's point. She said the number one thing is is getting rid of unregistered schools, which I, I completely agree with that unregistered schools are um, a big problem, not just when it comes to forced marriage, but in general, um, unregistered schools are subjecting children to awful conditions. Um, they're leaving them with, with, with very little meaningful education um, and they're putting their, you know, their, their welfare at risk. So absolutely... You know, the NSS supports um, any effort to tackle unregistered schools and to make sure there are no more and also to regulate homeschooling. So that can't be exploited as a loophole. Um, what we find is that homeschooling can be used as a loophole um, where the parents are saying, well, our child is homeschooled. But what's actually happening is the child's been sent to an unregistered school. Um, so that's a loophole that needs to be closed. Megan Manson, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.